Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malam. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. Often seen as the seminal moment of Judaism, The giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai recounted in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20, and recalled again in the book of Deuteronomy, reads kind of like a fairy tale, though a bit of a scary one. An invisible but awe-inspiring and fierce God speaks with the prophet Moses and delivers a set of stone tablets upon which are engraved the Ten Commandments. In Jewish tradition, this is seen as but a small part of the ensuing revelation of the five books of Moses and its accompanying oral explanations. And the tradition envisions that, in fact, much of the Torah is given first at Sinai and then in the subsequent 40 years of Israelite wandering in the desert. And for successive generations of believing Jews, this is the Ur narrative of the faith, the fervent conviction that God, quote, gave the Torah at Sinai, unquote. But the story has always tested human credulity. How is it possible for an invisible, unknowable divine force to interface with human beings? and communicate in ways which are then prophetically processed as a jumbled series of narratives, laws, and other information, what do the words of the text actually mean? And if all language is subject to how we interpret it, then how can one ever say that what happened at Sinai is, quote, the truth, unquote? Or are we forced on some level to always regard Torah as the human interpretation of the word, and thus prone to our subjective experiences and understandings? Is the Torah text, which is in the beginning, is orally communicated to a generation of former slaves and then to their descendants, really appropriate thousands of years later for human beings who've developed and changed in so many vital ways? How can its moral and spiritual messages not be lost? Are we bound to its laws in the 21st century? I'm Elliot Malamud, and this is What Would You Do? A monthly podcast about ethics in the modern world. In this episode... I took up these questions and more with one of the leading Jewish theologians in the world today, Professor Tamar Ross, who lives in Jerusalem. Professor Ross taught for many years at Bar-Ilan University and is perhaps best known for her 2004 book, Expanding the Palace of Torah, which examined the relationship between and also the critique of feminism and Orthodox Judaism. Professor Ross lives a strictly Orthodox life, and so it is sometimes a surprise for people when they encounter her unusual and admittedly not always easy to understand, theology, and her understanding of the implications of what happened at Mount Sinai. Her quest to articulate her conception of revelation leads to no stone unturned. Everything from does God exist, to can a divine being really communicate with humans, and is the Torah true in a literal or historical sense, are put on the table and reinterpreted in ways that Professor Ross herself sees as completely and legitimately sourced in the Jewish tradition, but which her critics feel go beyond the pale of orthodoxy. 
central to her ideas is what she calls cumulativism, which is that God's will cumulatively unfolds throughout history and is not to be found exclusively or even largely at the Sinai event, because human beings are always constrained by the limits of language and their own cultural backgrounds and biases, who God is, or what God wants, as it were, can only be revealed through the ongoing perceptions and insights of successive generations. And as you will hear, although Tamar Ross is a devotee of the Torah text, and believes that all of Judaism is in some way anchored to those original words, it is also clear that for her, there is no literal or historical truth to the phantasmagorical scenes narrated in Exodus 19 and 20, which raises a question of whether the Torah is on some level but an imaginative fiction meant to inspire moral acts and ethical predispositions. In other words, stop focusing on what happened at Sinai and how, and instead imbibe the way of life that the words inspire. I began by asking Professor Ross whether as a child, she remembered how she felt about God, about faith, about prayer. Did she have a feeling about faith? And if so, did it emerge from her parents or from other sources? As a child, God felt more or less like my father, only more so. Someone benign, but also a disciplinarian, expected me to try my best to be as good a person as I could. I do remember around the age of eight, wishing that God would provide me with some sort of tangible hint of his existence, send me a message of a red thread from the sky or something like that. But most of the time, trust in my religious way of life and belief system was natural, was part of the air I breathed and took for granted without much questioning. When I woke up in the morning and recited Modani, this was a natural corollary of my Jewish identity. Performing mitzvot was simply what Jews do. It also served to demarcate me from my non-Jewish environment and make me feel part of a special nation. At that time, the idea of God and the idea of being Jewish and even Orthodox were very much entwined. Growing up as an Orthodox Jew in the United States in the mid-20th century was very much attached to the idea of borders, of how I was different from others, and that truth and God were on my side. And were some of the issues that came to exercise you as an adult kind of already percolating for you as a teenager, or would you say those only came later? No. Although I was brought up in a Hebrew-speaking family, and the daughter of a rabbi, my parents made a conscious decision to send me to public school because they wanted me to learn religious studies in the original Hebrew, and they educated me privately. So going along to public school obviously brought up differences between me and my surrounding environment. Contact with non-Jews and with Jews of other denominations or secular Jews stirred up interest in formulating my ideological defense lines. But the starting point was always a feeling of pride and confidence in the superiority of the particular way of life in which I was born. Even during my teens, if I ever encountered any questions, I generally laid my trust in traditional Torah Umada style responses. Torah Umada was the slogan of the Orthodox flag, flag, flagship institution in Sheba University that meant viewing science and religion as competing on the same ballpark in a joint attempt to capture some objective reality. 
So when and if I was faced with apparent conflicts between Torah and reason or science, this meant one of two approaches. Either I appropriate the rational tools of science itself in order to disprove any seemingly problematic conclusions, or alternatively, I would interpret any questionable religious statement metaphorically so that it really aligns with the conclusions of science. But as I began being exposed to more critical thinking in my later teens, I found this approach increasingly wanting. When I registered as a student at Hebrew University in Israel already, I was introduced for the first time to the notion of differing narratives, that the orthodox narrative of Judaism wasn't necessarily an exclusive one, that other streams told other stories, and that the past could be read differently. So beyond problematic findings of the hard sciences or history, archaeology, I was now introduced to new difficulties posed by anthropology, comparative religion, literary analysis, and other disciplines in the social sciences and in the softer humanities. Interpreting problematic statements allegorically or suggesting that God deliberately planted contradictions in the Torah for educational purposes, which were usual ploys, they didn't begin to cover the problems like conflicting genealogies, anachronisms, implausible descriptions of miraculous events, and culture-bound limitations in the theological or moral conception of the Torah. The feminist critique in particular pointed to a more deep and all-pervasive male bias that is so implicit and subtle that the innocent reader often remains unaware of its very existence. And topping all of this was the very notion of verbal revelation and its anthropomorphic connotations. I remember being impressed by the statement of the pre-Socratic philosopher Xenophon, who said, if human beings were donkeys, God would have a tail and bray eel. So linguistic expression is really a distinct human characteristic, and the absurdity of applying it to God comes to light the moment you start probing for more concrete details. Did God talk in Ashkenazi or Sparty accent? Was his voice bass or alto? Did he stumble over some words or have a lisp? If we were there, could we have made a tape recording and play it back on our at our leisure? So the combined effect of all these challenges gradually led me to sense the ultimate futility of applying a motley collection of patches in piecemeal fashion, as did Torah Mata, when such flaws could be resolved so much more elegantly by one simple naturalistic explanation that left God and metaphysics completely out of the picture. Without consciously abandoning the Torah Mada approach, I found myself during those years increasingly drawn to the thought of Rav Cook. To this day, Rav Cook is best known to the general public for the political views that are attributed to him, not always with justice, regarding Jewish nationalism, messianism, the Jewish state, especially after the Six-Day War. But my attraction to his writings had far more to do with the theological and mystic aspects of his thought, which are just now coming more to light. And perhaps this was already prompted by an intuitive sense I had that the solution to my problems somehow lay there. As opposed to Toromada, Rav Kook wasn't shy of embracing contradictions 
or of discovering true value in heretical tendencies that emanate from ostensibly non-kosher sources. In fact, it was his stance regarding the positive function of Darwin's theory of evolution in expanding our religious ideas that inspired the title of a book I wrote on orthodox and orthodoxy and feminism, which was entitled Expanding the Palace of Torah. What this title comes to suggest is that, like evolution, or Rav Cook's view of it, the advance of the feminist critique might also indicate that we have outgrown primitive ideas of the relationship between the human and the divine, and that this challenge might similarly serve an ultimate spiritual purpose. I just want to pop in for a sec. I'm interested in what that must have felt like for you emotionally, you, you, because I'm interested in the, the sort of binary that got set up here. You you talked about how in your early years, especially when you were, in, I guess, in high school and educated by your father and so on, there was a kind of orthodox pride and also a sense of boundaries. You know, this is what we think. This is what we believe, not like those guys, those guys being either non-Jews or other denominations. And here you are suddenly narrating, I guess, beginning in the later 50s when you get to Hebrew U and onwards, that you're you're struck by and absorbing all of these new lines of thought, not just as you say the hard sciences, but things about archaeology and semiotics and all these critical theories that come to show you that in a way the narrative that you yourself had embraced for so long wasn't quite up to snuff, that it really wasn't going to work, and that traditional sort of orthodox apologetics weren't going to kind of really do the job in facing up to really difficult questions about religion in modernity. Was that like, was that upsetting in any way? Was it shocking? Was it liberating? Was it exhilarating? Like, what did it feel like? It didn't feel shocking. It felt liberating because in Harav Kook and in sources which he led me to, I found that the traditional narrative posed many more options than were conceived of by modern orthodoxy. And that led me to articulate an approach which I called cumulativism, which really bases itself on some very traditional ideas. As I understood cumulativism, and I didn't think I was Columbia's discovering America or inventing America, I was discovering strands that already existed. And I summed them up in point form as three separate assumptions. The first assumption is, if a divine message comes to serve for all time, it can't be rendered to finite minds all at one shot. If the Torah is to bear a message for all generations, or if anyone is to bear a message for all generations, its revelation has to be a dynamic process, a gradual unfolding that reveals its ultimate significance incrementally only through time. The second proposition was that, and here again there are very traditional sources, God's message isn't presented through the reverberation of vocal cords, neither his nor those of a created voice, as some medieval commentators suggested, in order to avoid the problem of anthropomorphic visions of God. God's word is heard rather through the mouthpiece of history and the evolution of human understanding, both of which trigger new rabbinic interpretations of the original sanctified text. If that same voice reverberates throughout time, it must be a spiritual voice. Sometimes in the past, 
It has taken the form of prophecy. At other times, necessary adjustments to the constraints of a new era and the ideas that these bring forth may also constitute a new hearing. History, and particularly what happens to the Jewish people, the ideas and forms they accept, as well as the process of determining those they reject, this essentially is another form of ongoing revelation, a surrogate prophecy. And the third notion, which is more conservative, is that although the successive hearings of God's Torah sometimes appear to contradict the original message, that message phonetically is never replaced. The text that we have accepted as the original Sinaitic revelation always remains the primary cultural linguistic filter through which these new deviations are heard and understood. The words remain the same, but their meaning is altered sometimes very significantly when they are read in shifting new contexts. The loyalty to the words and the constraints that this does impose are what guarantee continuity and coherence to the cumulative message. So let me just see if I have the three points right and summarize them. The first one is that for God to be infinite, you can't be stuck with a finite rendering of a text. It has to grow. Second one is that when we talk about the idea of, quote, God's voice, unquote, we're certainly not talking about God having vocal cords. We're not even talking about an idea that's mentioned in medieval discussions of God creating a special voice for himself, almost a kind of science fiction notion, which is a one-time creation that communicates the stuff. We're not talking about that either. In fact, what we're talking about is a spiritualized notion of a voice. It's not actually a sound, but it's an idea that reverberates through history and is therefore interpreted at different points by different people in different ways to create a kind of fresh and growing tradition. But this, the last point that I think is, is actually interesting in a curious way, which is the insistence that we still go back to quote the words, unquote, meaning the words of the Torah and that we remain, have a certain kind of fidelity to them. I guess what's, what's puzzles me in a way, not just in what you're saying, but in the very idea itself is that what does language mean anyway? Right. In other words, when we say we have fidelity to words, it almost becomes meaningless if people's understanding of those words, if you said to three different people the same words and they meant three different things, then what is the, what do those words constitute anyway? They just constitute a kind of jumping off point for different people to say different things about them. So are they really anchored in a sense? Well, they can't be totally wild. They move you in a certain direction. And the fact and the weight of history, the fact that generation after generation has been directed through this channel gives the, the years of the past a certain weight. So it's a bit that much more difficult to go completely wild, except when you go gradually and incrementally. A starting point does point you in a certain direction. And when you use the words, no matter what they intended were intended in the beginning, the weight of the interpretation that they were given, even if it gradually moves in a slightly new direction, restricts or, or points in a particular way. You have a river, and the river flows. And sometimes there are eddies, and sometimes there are little pebbles at the side that get worn. And then eventually, sometimes there's a sudden breakthrough that happens through the very incremental changes 
that for a long while looked as if they were going in a certain direction. And that's the way the Torah and its uh, verbal fidelity also function. I think, by the way, one of my observations over time is that more than anything else, more even perhaps than belief in God or in a, in a monotheistic God, Judaism really venerates continuity. Continuity is a, a very central tenet of Judaism. As I mentioned earlier, many religious believers, when they read the accounts of Revelation in the book of Exodus, for instance— take for granted some kind of realistic picture of the proceedings. That is, without necessarily knowing how, in terms of the mechanics of how this might have been accomplished, they maintain faith that God somehow communicated the words in the Torah and that ultimately Moshe received and transmitted them accurately, word for word, in stages, to the Jewish people. Contrast this with Professor Ross's view, which we take up in the next part of our conversation, a view that she describes as one of non-realism. Philosophers employ the term realism to say that certain kinds of things exist independently of our experience of them and our thought about them. So that car that's parked outside my door exists regardless of whether I see it or believe in it. Non-realism seems to undermine the idea that there are realities that are out there existing objectively that transcend human language or social forms. In the realm of religion, as the English philosopher of religion Don Cuppet describes it, one form of non-realism says that God is real for those who believe in God. In Cuppet's words, one way of defining a modern religious non-realism would be to say that the believer recognizes that we cannot prove the objective of existence of the old God anymore, but we can still take the thought of God as our God and live by it as if it were all true. So one lives by the idea of God. When I ask Tamar why someone with modern moral sensibilities would feel bound by the Torah, she began to unfurl her vision of religious non-realism. Non-realism is really a second and more controversial step in my view of revelation that isn't necessarily linked with the concept of cumulativism. You can be a cumulativist and still insist the original core revelation, even if it didn't actually take place at Sinai and accord completely with the biblical description, was still grounded on some objective source of communication with God and that it exists independently of human thought. On the other hand, you can hold on to cumulativism and be skeptical, as I am, regarding the objective reality not only of any divine communication, but even of any concept of God himself that's clean of subjective human perceptions. So just to be clear on that, so you're saying that it's not at all clear to you as an objective truth that A, God exists, and B, that God gave the Torah to Jews at Sinai in a kind of simple form. Right. Okay. And that's going to clue into your questions of continuity at okay. this age. Okay. Before going any further, I first want to emphasize I'm not a non-realist in the sense that I discount metaphysics altogether. I, as I dare say, all human beings, have had occasion to experience a sense of unity with nature, wonder, beauty, awe, all of which pull to intimations of something infinitely greater than our immediate material existence. I also believe that we humans haven't begun to scratch the surface of possible modes of existence and consciousness that neuroscience, astrophysics, 
space technology, testimony of telepathic communications and psychic experiences might indicate. But I am a non-realist regarding the ability of my own religious tradition or that of any other tradition to grant this metaphysical something a name or grasp its ultimate character in any objective manner. Such skepticism on my part has three elements. Well, it first begins with the understanding that no metaphysical truth has the power to simply bang us over the head and compel us to understand it as such. Even the original epiphany attributed to Sinai could be acknowledged as God's word only when filtered through the prism of past cultural traditions and symbols. This insight, by the way, is really corroborated by some biblical scholars who suggest that historically the Israelite belief in Torah from heaven was a byproduct rather than the basis for commitment to the uniquely Jewish practices that it prescribes. Atheists viewing the thunder and lightning at Sinai might have said, wow, a nasty weather today. A pagan with no prior theistic conceptions might have concluded that the mountain is talking. Only people who had already assumed a particular way of life and conceptions of an all-powerful creator who rules and displays interest in human affairs could ascribe a document and narrative sanctifying that way of life to divine origins. I personally have relied on three separate strands of thought that have encouraged me to build on a subjectivist approach to metaphysics. And I'm going to try and explain them one by one. The first is Kant. The second is Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. And the third is Wittgenstein's theory of language. And all this has to go back eventually to the idea of continuity and why you you hold on to it in any case. So the first influential source for a subjectivist approach is Kant, who instigated what he termed his Copernican revolution to our understanding of reality. In other words, just as Copernicus taught us that the Earth is not the stationary center of the cosmos, around which everything else revolves, so Kant taught that objective reality is not at the center of our cognition, but rather the other way around. What we perceive of objective reality is necessarily shaped by certain categories of thought, such as time, space, causality. These are innate to human reason and experience. Because of these constraints, Kant taught that we can never approach what he called the thing in itself unmediated by this filter. For this reason, we must always distinguish between things as they are and how we experience them. This understanding was applied by later philosophers, particularly to metaphysical ideas such as God, freedom, immortality. Such notions are not objects of our direct experience. Their function can only be regulative or practical, but not descriptive or factual. But if you ask me about my personal odyssey, I must admit that for me, the aha moment that initially provoked my interest in non-realist views of revelation and other truth claims didn't come from Kant, but rather from more internal sources grounded in Jewish mysticism, 
which, by the way, appear to have anticipated Kant in their skepticism regarding our ability to capture reality altogether. It was actually Rav Cook who first introduced me to this line of thought when he stated, and I'm quoting here, it is true, and we have always known it and did not need Kant to reveal this secret to us, that all human cognitions are relative and subjective. But Rav Cook then goes on to emphasize that while Kant distinguishes between, first of all, a noumenal or objective reality, what he calls the thing in itself, secondly, phenomenal reality, which denotes our perception of the noumenal, and thirdly, human categories of thought that necessarily distinguish between the mediate between the two. But he thought Kabbalah is different. Unlike Kant, Kabbalah equates the noumenal thing as it is in itself with God's all-inclusive, infinite being of which our limited or phenomenal perceptions are also a part. This led some modern offshoots of Jewish mysticism to take the phrase en od milvado, literally there is nothing other than he, they took it quite literally. And they understood that ontologically there really is nothing other than he. Just as rays of light disappear the closer we approach their source, so we come closer to a true understanding of divine infinity to the extent that we acknowledge the illusory nature of our limited perceptions and relate them to their infinite source. Would this entail at its ultimate state that, in fact, human life itself would be illusory? Human life, from God's point of view, if you can talk about a point of view, doesn't exist. It is merged in his infinite existence like drops are emerged in the sea and the sea doesn't see separate drops. Now, Hasidim and Nadim, who both follow this line of thought, they have debated how we should relate to this insight, whether we should try and pierce our illusory sense of separateness or make peace with it as an inevitable feature of the human condition. But according to both, The usual theistic picture of God standing over and above the world and controlling it from without, or even revealing himself to us in the sense of communication between two separate entities, doesn't correspond to some objective metaphysical truth lying out there. I think this has important repercussions in deflating the sharp demarcation between the human and the divine when we understand the nature of Torah. I'll just give a quote here from Rav Kook, which took my fancy regarding in this context. He writes, There is a heresy that amounts to an affirmation of faith, and an affirmation of faith that amounts to heresy. How so? A person may affirm that the Torah is from heaven, but the picture of heaven that he envisions is so weird that nothing of true faith remains. And how might heresy amount to affirmation of faith, when a person denies belief in Torah from heaven, but his denial is based merely on what he has absorbed of the picture of heaven construed by minds filled with ludicrous ludicrous and nonsensical thoughts. Such a person says, Torah must stem from a source that's higher than this, and he begins to find its basis in the grandeur of the spirit of man and the depth of his morality 
and in the height of his wisdom. So the quote you've just enumerated here certainly casts great skepticism on a sort of traditional narrative like Exodus chapter 20, where God gives the Torah and there's tablets and humans and so so on. So this, this view eventually really helped me to unfreeze the simplistic metaphor of God dictating the entire Torah to Moshe and to formulate more nuanced views of revelation and the, and the relationship between the human and the divine. Now I want to come to a third source, and that is, aside from Kant and Kabbalah, my non-realism draws more recent innovations of the famous 20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Scholarly debate continues to this day regarding the status that Wittgenstein himself attributed to metaphysics, but there's no question that he distinguished between religious truth statements and statements of fact by teaching that any linguistic expression acquires its meaning and value from the context in which it is employed. If I say good morning, it means one thing when I'm giving a weather report and quite another when I'm greeting my friend, especially if it's really storming outside. Or if a waitress asks me for my order in a coffee shop and I say, no, 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 I'm waiting for the Messiah, that would well justify her keeping a weary eye on me. But if I uttered the same remark in synagogue, that's an entirely different matter. So truth statements offered in a religious context could serve multiple functions. But what Wittgenstein's theory of language teaches us is that such statements generally don't function as a simple and inescapable statement of fact. Their main job, and now I'm getting back to your question of continuity, what, why, why do we stick to the original words at least? The main job of religious truth, truth statements isn't to describe how the world is, but rather to orient us to a certain view of it, to create a picture of reality that suggests how we are to live our lives what sort of experiences to hope for, what will grant them meaning. More specifically, when I say that I believe in Torah from heaven, or that this source is the primary source, its main concern, regardless of how literary, literally I take it, is not to dis- discuss facts or establish history, but to make a statement on an entirely different plane, perhaps that the Torah for me dictates and regulates a way of life, and worldview to which I am inextricably bound, that it represents my ultimate values and loyalties, or that I wish to identify with the community that accepts its dictates, that I'm willing to make irrational sacrifices for this identification, and so on. Whether or not I can find scientific evidence for an actual divine communication that took place at Sinai is beside the point. And in truth, even if I could photograph the event and send it on WhatsApp to all my friends, such evidence on its own wouldn't necessarily lead to any compelling religious conclusions. So let, let's think a little bit about your non-realism, right? You, you've, you've talked about how three distinct kind of intellectual strands influenced it, Kant's idea that what he called the spectacles that human beings put on always frame for them how they see reality. They can never see reality in and of itself. Kabbalah's notion almost of the collapse between the subject-object binary, that in fact, from God's point of view, there is nothing. That sounds very Eastern in a way. If you look at Hindu 
theology, right? The, the idea that the, the drops in the wa- and the sea are, are one. And the last one, was, which is Wittgenstein's especially later approach to language in which there are different kinds of language games for different contexts and Jews and Christians and Muslims play their own language games in which the context of saying, I believe in God in one place is radically different than in another place. But what strikes me here, and especially your last comments in which it's less important as a Jew to think about whether there's any objective reality to God or God giving the Torah, but rather the kind of using of the Jewish tradition to forge a way of life that is noble, beautiful, moral. And when I think about that, you, you, you could argue that this idea sort of sees the narrative in Exodus that talks about God giving the Torah to the Jewish people as a kind of fiction, perhaps meant to inspire moral behavior, but in fact, no more true than, say, Hamlet or Harry Potter. And just like a person might reflect on the perils of procrastination from watching Hamlet without believing for one second that a person named Hamlet ever existed in real life. So now I read the Torah and I decide, oh, you know, I don't believe this is like true in any, you know, God-given sense, but it's an interesting inspiration that I should, I'll gossip less now that I've read it, you know, without thinking of the Torah as in any way somehow historically true. So that's sort of religious fictionalism. And I wondered if you could comment on fictionalism and how it plays a role in your thought. And I guess, I mean, I'm sure listeners at this point are thinking, but she's orthodox, right? In other words, I'm sure they will find it very difficult to put together how can an orthodox person live an orthodox life and yet believe in a kind of religious fiction. So I'm wondering if you could address that. So first of all, I'd like to point out that there are various intermediary intermediary positions between a realistic view of revelation as an objective statement of fact and religious fictionalism. Some beliefs that lack full-blown evidence are accepted as a matter of trust. There's this distinction between belief in rather than belief that, like a mother who believes in her son's innocence even in the face of contradiction, out of faith that in the end this trust will prove true on a factual level as well. Other beliefs are adopted in the spirit of William James's will to believe on the understanding that like the eternal bachelor, who refuses to marry until he finds the perfect woman, there are certain propositions that will never materialize if you are prepared to open yourself out to their possibility. And then there are more tentative professions of faith that might be taken in the spirit of opportunism, like Pascal's wager, on the chance that if they do prove true, true we can't afford to at least pay lip service and forfeit this uh, promise for eternal bliss if we do profess them. So I can't swear that my non-liberalism is always at the fictionist extreme. I certainly remember the atmosphere in 1948, and even more so in 1967, when realization of the visions of the prophets appeared so palpable that it was hard not to attribute their influence to something more than the natural power of self-images to fulfill themselves. Like William James talks about the shy person who walks into a room and he says, nobody's going to like me. So his whole body language really makes that come true. Now, having said all this, I believe religious fictionalism gets disproportionately bad press. One of the objections raised is a practical one, that a non-realist approach to revelation doesn't provide the necessary clout or staying power 
that will guarantee perpetuation or continuity of the religious way of life. My response to that objection is that this form of criticism unwittingly slips into the same pragmatism or instrumentalism that it comes to deny, admitting that our religious doctrines have to be generally shaped by a prior interest in a particular form of life rather than the other way around. Another objection to religious fictionalism is that it's no better than fear of ghosts that are based on irrational superstitions or that fictionalism applies a cynical form of orthopraxy which pays lip service to certain doctrines for the sake of superficial external advantages. But to my mind, one of the most valuable features of Judaism and the halachic way of life is its cultivation of a form of religious imagination, religious forms of make-belief, like other forms of art, play a transformative role in the way we view our spiritual selves by inducing attitudes rather than prescribing truths. When on Shavuot I'm called upon to relive, relive the giving of the Torah at Sinai, on Pesach, when I am commanded to recount the story of the Exodus, and see myself as if I personally was delivered from Egypt, and every Shabbat to artificially create a bubble of holiness, commemorating the fact that God himself, as it were, created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The true purpose of these mitzvot isn't to record history, but to introduce certain moods or perspectives that grant an added dimension of spirituality and holiness to my everyday experience. So I agree with the opening of what you said. I don't think it's a kind of either or. I think that, you know, there's what Peter Berger called sort of soft theology, where you have intimations, what, what Wordsworth called intimations of immortality. You have a sense of nature or birth or that metaphysics may be impossible to apprehend in a kind of all or nothing way. You know, nobody's going to see God tomorrow but that we have a sense of something transcendent, something more. Okay. I think that certain kinds of believers, the, the sticking point becomes becoming self-conscious about doing all of these mitzvot and yet feeling that the ground beneath them is, in a way, a fiction. Now, when we talk about a fiction, we're talking about a complicated term, right? So we don't know exactly what that ground is. But I think a lot of believers have grown up considering the idea that the reason I do this stuff, look, there are a lot of people who just do it because they do it and their families do it and so on. But if anyone was to reflect theologically even for a second, and they were they, they would say, well, I do this because, you know, God gave the Torah to Moshe at Sinai, which is another way of saying that somehow I feel an obligation to put myself out because there's something beyond just sort of ancient human beings telling me to do stuff that somewhere there's a thread or a cord that leads to God. Now, if we blatantly say to them, really, there might be a cord, but actually even discussing whether there is a cord or isn't a cord is kind of irrelevant because we're never going to actually going to be able to know that. So you just do it because it gives meaning to you as a form of life. Do you feel that if we were to tell people that, in other words, if people came so aware that it's really kind of iffy to ascribe a traditional theology that there's this really solid ground under your feet that God gave these words to Moses who passed them on to the elders who passed them on to the prophets. No, no, it didn't really work that way. It works in a much more fluid, almost invisible way. 
but do it anyway. Do the stuff anyway. Do you think that would throw people off? In other words, it, you, you yourself have said that there is a problem of living with both a traditional religious vocabulary, in fact, the Judaism that you yourself say here how you've been raised with, and your now more sophisticated awareness of its limitations, you've said, can I remove my philosophical cap when praying and put it on again when I'm theologizing? And can that kind of flip-flopping guarantee a rigorous philosophic commitment? I sort of think, you know, that's a good question. So would you, in fact, Tamar, be saying, this is what I think theologically, but it's probably better if you don't think about what I'm thinking about <laughs> when you daven. Okay. I think davening really, praying is the quintessential test for this kind of thing. And when addressing prayer, I think I should begin by quoting a former colleague of mine several days before he died of cancer, and everybody knew he was dying. He declared in one of our group sessions, I don't pray because I believe in God. I believe in God in order to pray. And I have a similar quote from sort of maverick, mystic rabbi, contemporary, who also died of cancer. And he has a collection of aphorisms entitled, Hasidim will laugh at this. And he writes as follows. Sometimes I think that all of theology, all religions, and all words spoken in the world about God spring only from the need to explain the simple, instinctive human activity called prayer. An individual prays and needs to explain himself to whom he's praying and why he's praying and what is he doing. So he gives all this the name of God and he builds an entire religious worldview around it. But the core of it all is prayer. Or even Rav Cook, in a more poetic introduction to his commentary on the Siddur, he writes, the soul is engaged constantly in prayer. It unceasingly soars and yearns for its lover. Only during the time of actual prayer is the constant prayer of the soul revealed like a flower that opens its petals out to the dew. And another quote by the son of the postmodern Rav Shagar, which was quite striking. He said in one public speech, I'm constantly surrounded by, by doubt. Where does my prayer go? Is there a God? Does he hear me? Will he answer my prayer? Is its effect psychological or real? The word God has no sense. But the prayer itself does something, and it precedes all these questions. Faith is in that moment the need to pray, to think, to feel dependence, to experience wonder, Prayer doesn't necessarily rely on certainty, just the sense that it's a live option, the ability to open oneself out to the possibility that there might be a miracle, the willingness to say that if yes, yes, and if no, I'll accept that too, to create space that is free of reflection, that connects heaven and earth. Prayer is like a novel you enter into without a buttoned-up suit, which are dogmas, truths, falsehoods. The act itself is the faith performance. In other words, for all these people, God isn't a what, a particular doctrine, a relationship. Religious belief is to accept the reality that there aren't answers to my questions, and this is inevitable. What all of these people seem to be saying is that the stance of prayer is a natural human instinct 
an organized religion just comes to lend it some, some form. So if you ask what awareness of fictionalism does for my religious experience, I would say that for me, the understanding that every religious system is a cultural artifact grounded on a prior inclination to perceive its particular message as God's true will. This creates a type of chicken and egg or duck rabbit situation. On the one hand, as a cumulativist, I see the Torah and all further revelations accruing to it as divine because God provided the historical circumstances that enabled me to see them as such. On the other hand, as a metaphysical non-realist, I acknowledge that it is we who decide that these circumstances, Dafka, not others, were triggered by God. Depending upon the strength of their respective grip on me, I might experience both perspectives as elements of a single reality, so that the Torah can be regarded as all human and all divine at one and the same time. Or alternatively, I may flip between the two perspectives or see one as the critical prism through which the other is viewed and recognize that after all is said and done, this is an inevitable feature of mine and the human condition. So to me, this argument works very well if you're already inclined by background, by parenting, by culture to some sort of religious affiliation. You you grew up and you like the smell, the sound, the feeling of Judaism. But And I like the live option notion, the notion that we don't know what we're praying to, but we creep it as a live option. Maybe it's a miracle. But a lot of this actually converges to me, Tamar, with the sort of contemporary sort of mindfulness spirituality movement. It's in a way, unless you're one of those people I talked about a moment ago is kind of predisposed to some sort of cultural expression, whether it be, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, whatever, one could take what you're talking about and say, I can do all of these things well outside of the organized religion context. And actually, there's an advantage to this. What's the advantage? That I get to siphon off all of the stuff that I find oppressive and I find objectionable, whether it be treatment of women, divorce law in Judaism, hundreds of other details in Western religious traditions, and keep the core, which seems to me the notion of reaching out to experience, opening myself up to a prayer experience, opening myself up to the spiritual within me, etc., etc., etc. So it, it seems to me that in a way, what you've carved out here is a, a space for a modern seeker to say, yeah, I that vibes with me. But in a way, you've created questions. Why would a religious believer maintain themselves within the strict confines of a way of life? Unless, of course, they just like it. But that only works if it's not disadvantageous to you. So I'm curious, you as a woman who've actually talked at length about the disadvantages that the tradition presents to women in certain aspects, how could one, and maybe we can close our conversation on this, how can one then overcome the disadvantages or why would one stay in the game? I guess is a better way of putting it. If the game itself is not played by my rules. Every, every stance in a game has rules. If you jump out of your tradition, you're into another tradition. Educationally, I wouldn't put the stuff I said at the end at the forefront of my educational program. Quite the opposite. I think that one begins with a very intense experience of the religious fiction 
from the inside. And like sex education, where you sort of feel where the questioner is at, you answer according to their readiness. You all, always answer straight, but you feel where that person is at before opening out for them the outer view. But everybody has an interview, and keeping Jews within the internal Jewish framework really depends on a certain amount of training, hergel, and, and loving it. In the end, it's the love for that tradition, feeling at home in it, uh, that really counts in the long run. Professor Ross's final comments are both psychologically true and also religiously sobering, as she asserts, every stance in the game has rules. If you jump out of your tradition, you're into another tradition. People who expel Judaism and Jewish practice from their lives may see themselves as now free of constraints and oppressive ideologies. But it is a recurring pattern of life that all of us, often unwittingly, substitute some other gods for the old and supposedly archaic ones we have discarded. The contemporary writer Neil Gaiman has commented insightfully about this never-ending filling of the god void in his work, American Gods. Quote, there are new gods growing in America, clinging to growing knots of belief, gods of credit card and freeway, of internet and telephone, of radio and hospital and television, gods of plastic and of beeper and of neon, unquote. My conversation with Tamar Ross only began to scratch the surface of her philosophy, her non-realism obviously sets off more than a few landmines for traditionalists about how or in what way Jewish law might be binding, and whether a document that is almost exclusively the product of the human imagination has any power to compel people with its prescriptions and ways of life. For Jews today who are still interested in practicing Judaism, but find it hard to absorb the Jewish theological package, her theology opens up possibilities— to appreciate the Torah and its relevance for postmodernity, As she stands again at Sinai using her critical lens, she at once banishes our naivete, while at the same time creating a space where we are free to rethink our Judaism and our lives in spiritually exciting new ways. I'm Elliot Malamud, and this has been What Would You Do? If you'd like to check out previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts and online offerings, just subscribe for free to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org, where you can sign up for our amazing School of Living Jewishly. Check us out as well on Facebook and Instagram. Stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.